Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you for that kind introduction, Matt. I'm still not going to change your grade in that class. So even no matter what you say. Now, of course, Matt was a very good student. I'm sure you're not surprised by that. And uh, we in Louisville very much miss him and his family, sweet family. We miss Mike and Jen Graham, and we're delighted to hear about how the Lord is using them here. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I invite you to open your Bible to that. I'm trying to figure out, did I somehow get the... Uh, <laughs> it was a mistake for me to ask for the clicker, I think. But uh, if you could get me on that opening, opening slide, and then I can take us from there. So if you've ever... Uh, ridden on a plane before, you know, you know what it's like. You sit down and they're making announcements and there's some flight attendant who then gets up and tells you if we lose cabin pressure, these things will fall from the ceiling. You should put your mask on yourself and then on whoever's with you. And, and uh, if, there's a, uh, if we have to land in water, here's where the flotation devices are. And it, if you've been on a plane, you know usually people are not paying attention at all. They're getting their movies set up on their iPad. They're chatting. I want you to imagine, however, if you were on a flight, and as it began to land, as it began to descend, the, the captain's voice came over the loudspeaker, and he said, I don't want you to be alarmed, but the landing gear is not working on this plane, and we are going to have to do a landing without wheels, which would be called a controlled crash landing. The flight attendants, don't worry, right now everything, we're up in the air, but the flight attendants are going to uh, stand up and review with you the emergency procedures for exiting the airplane and for how to brace yourself for a crash. My guess is that people are going to pay much closer attention uh, at that point uh, than they would thinking, well, this will never happen. Well, in Paul's letter to 1 Timothy, when he talks about false teachers and he talks about uh, the danger of people being led into deception. We're in that moment of crash landing coming. Paul says, this is really happening, Timothy, and I need you to pay attention. I need the church to pay attention to know what to do in this moment of crisis. I invite you to stand as we read the Scripture together from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask him to bless our hearing of it. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand the scriptures, to believe, to obey, to treasure Christ our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. I want to look at this passage of Scripture under three subheadings. And the first one is, uh, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And I want us to see that you know, Paul is preparing, preparing Timothy, preparing the church there, and preparing us 
for the days that are ahead. You know, a few studies have shown that when people go through premarital counseling, they have a much higher success rate in marriage, much less chance of divorce because they know what's coming. They are expecting the trials and difficulties of marriage. And here Paul says, I want to let you know what's really going to happen. And he's focusing here on one thing. He says that some will abandon the faith. Some will abandon the faith. And I want to talk about what this means and what it doesn't mean, right? First of all, let's remember Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, right? Uh, but but what, we, what we see here is really a teaching that, that Jesus taught as well, that there are some people who will be attracted to the faith. There will be people who will be involved with the Christian community, and there will come a point where they wander away from the faith, where they no longer uh, profess the faith that they once did. Now, the Scripture clearly teaches that when someone is a genuine believer, when someone is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God will preserve them and keep them to the end. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I'm still adjusting. I think I'm going to let you run the PowerPoint because I'm not too good at it. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. However, there's this category in Scripture of superficial faith, of apparent faith, of nominal faith, that the passing of time exposes as unreal, and these people are shown to not be believers. In, this is shown especially clearly in 1 John chapter 2. John is dealing with some people who've been part of the community, and then they've, they've wandered off. He says about them, he says, they went out from us, right? Not just physically, but doctrinally. They have abandoned the Christian faith. Behaviorally, in their behavior, they've abandoned the Christian faith. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. There's a value in realizing and understanding this truth because this is going to happen. And when it happens, when people who formerly profess faith in Christ or even leaders who profess faith in Christ, when this happens, we can be deeply grieved by this, but we should not become disillusioned, nor should we become alarmed because the Lord Jesus told us in His Word that this was going to happen. And specifically in this passage, Paul gives us three reasons that we should not be surprised. He says, this is going to happen. And then here in, the, in verse 1, he gives us three subsets of that. First of all, we shouldn't be surprised because of the times we live in. In verse 1, he says, in latter times, in latter times, some will abandon the faith. Well, when you first hear that latter times, you may be inclined to think, oh, that's, you know, that must be right, right before Jesus comes back. But if you look at the way that phrase is used in Scripture, uh, latter times, last days, last day, last hour, all throughout the New Testament, it's clear that the, the writers of the New Testament think of that language as applying to the time from after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and the coming of the Spirit, stretching all the way to His return. We're in the, the period of the last times. Now, you could say, well, we're closer to the end of the last times of this, but there's a whole period of the last days, the last times, the last hour, and, and, and during that time, it's, it, there's, a, there's a going forward of the gospel, 
because there's a clarity of God's revelation like there's never been before. Jesus has come. Death has been defeated. Salvation has been clearly proclaimed. But there's also a period of demonic opposition to that. It's the final death throes of the devil as he's being defeated. And I want to, I've asserted that to you, but I want to just show you, run through a few quick passages to show that language is used in that way. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul speaks about the terrible times in the last days. And he's talking about all these people. And, he, and then he applies it right to them. He says, nothing, have nothing to do with them. In other words, this language of the last days applies right then. In Jude chapter 1, in the last times, blah, 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 all these things will happen. He says, these are the men who divide you. Right? That language is applied to the days of Jude. In James chapter 5, uh, James says, you've hoarded up wealth in the last days. He's talking about right then, you rich people, you're oppressing the poor. In, in the last days, you've done this. Or in 1 John 2, 18, dear, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. And this last passage here really ties in tightly with this too, because John is saying somehow this, this, this focused demonic opposition to the gospel is a reminder we're in this final stage of world history, and we should expect that. It's as if, uh, if you can imagine, you found a rattlesnake in your garden. This is from the Tennessee part of me, right? The rattlesnake in your garden, and you killed it with a hoe probably, right? But are you, you mortally wounded it, but it's still writhing around. It's still rattling. It's still trying to, trying to strike at you if you get close enough at it, right? And that's what the devil is right now. The devil is writhing and striking and rattling and the result of this <clears throat> is that he's spreading deception through false teachers. And there's a danger for those who are on the edge of the Christian community, who are not truly converted, who are, who are to be drawn out of the community rather than to be drawn into it. One reason we can expect this sort of abandonment of the faith, we can expect this sort of deception, is the times we live in. We live in the latter times. Another reason we can expect it is who tells us this? Right? What is the origin of this message that, that there will be an abandonment of the faith by some? The origin of this message is the Holy Spirit of God himself. Right? Paul says here, the Spirit clearly says, right? And this is the, the Holy Spirit. So when God speaks, remember, God is omniscient. Right? He's all-knowing throughout all of world history. He's not only omniscient, he's unable to lie, Right? In Numbers, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And so uh, I was eating breakfast this morning in the, the hotel, and they have on the news, uh, you know, there's always something related to this person says this, this person says that. This is about Saudi Arabia. And Turkey. Did they do this? Did Turkey do that? And you think about Really, our news cycle, our world, is oftentimes people with competing claims. <laughs> this person says 100% this did happen. This person says 100% this didn't happen, right? But when God speaks, there is no secondary witness. <laughs> there is no contradictory witness, right? God, there is no standard of truth outside of God. God is himself the standard of truth. So when the Holy Spirit says this, when the Holy Spirit, whether speaking through Paul, there's some debate about this. Is, this. is Paul saying right now the Spirit is speaking through me? Is he perhaps referring to a prophecy uh, that he gave to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20 on Miletus? Is he perhaps referring to Jesus' words, empowered, Jesus anointed, empowered by the Spirit 
who told us through many parables that there would be people who fall away. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, sprouts that spring up, but then they have no root and they die. <clears throat> it's, it's not completely clear what Paul is, is, if he's referring to which of those, but he's clearly saying the Holy Spirit, whether through Jesus' ministry, whether through my, my previous prophecy, whether through me right now, the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, on, on the basis of God himself, his standard of truthfulness, I'm telling you, this is going to happen. So we see we, can, we shouldn't be surprised, we, sh- we can be saddened, we can be grieved, but we shouldn't be surprised that there will be people who name Christ and then fall away from the faith, who are deceived and who wander away because the days that we live in, the days of final demonic opposition to Christ and his kingdom, we shouldn't be surprised by this because um, God himself, the Holy Spirit of God, has told us this. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because of how he's told us this. He's told us this extremely Clearly, notice this word underneath this in Greek occurs, I believe, one time in the Greek New Testament. He says in verse 1, the Spirit clearly says this. It's interesting. There's a real emphasis. Unambiguously, without equivocation, without any fuzziness, I'm telling you, this is certainly going to happen. Now, when we read the Scripture, uh, the Scripture is perfect. It has exactly the level of clarity that God intends for it to have. But we recognize that we, as as flawed human beings, have varying abilities to see and understand that. So, for example, in Acts chapter 4, we read, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's extremely clear. When we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and Paul is talking about this is why, why then do you baptize for the dead? <laughs> we have to realize as flawed and fallible and imperfect humans, I read that and I'm like, I could, I could list for you five different possible reasons what he's talking about, but the level of clarity of my own understanding of that passage is not as great as some other passages. And in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, Right? And it doesn't say they're impossible to understand. Some things that are hard, some things that are, that are less clear to us. But this is not one of them, <laughs> right? This is not one of them. This is not called into question. There will be people who are visibly part of the Christian community who are led away into deception. And so that we're not disillusioned with the faith, so that we're not um, uh, alarmed, we need to be aware of this, we'll be saddened by it when it happens, but we won't uh, be surprised. We see secondly, a second major heading that I want to give you for the passage is don't be naive. Paul doesn't want Timothy to be naive. He doesn't want us to be naive. Now, about six years ago, my family and I, we bought a new house and someone had the bright idea maybe 20 years ago of building a sunroom over what had formerly been a concrete uh, patio. Well, which, you know, we continue to have problems with that part of the house over and over again. I don't think it was that great an idea. But it, when it's working, it's nice to sit out there and see the sun. And one time I was sitting out there about a year ago, and I saw a little, like, mark up on the wall or something. I thought, was, is that like a moth? Or, you know, and then it was there again. I thought, is that like a fly? You can see I'm a very industrious cleaning person because I'm just sort of looking at it and walking away. A couple of weeks I did this. Is like a fly and like a, you know, spider web? What is that? And then finally, I climbed up on the couch and got up where I could look, and I was like, oh, there was a little hole in the wall and this little sort of tubular tunnel of sawdust-looking stuff coming out of it. (laughs) Termites. 
right? Not only at the, at the top of the wall, right? I uh, sort of was naive about the seriousness of the problem that I was viewing. And Paul doesn't want us to be naive. He says this is, you know, and in, in using modern-day language, we could say this is not a sociological migration. You know, this is not a Gallup poll changing religious preferences. This is a demonic attack, right? Paul says the reason people are led astray is they're following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons that ultimately picking people off from the edges of the Christian community and deceiving and confusing people who are within the Christian community is a matter of spiritual and demonic attack. So just to apply this very practically, if a college student comes home and they're finding themselves, you know, this religion I grew up in, Christianity, it seems kind of fairy taleish, kind of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to apply anymore, and I'm finding myself, these friends I'm hanging out with, I want to live more like them. Paul would say, you're not growing, you're not becoming a progressive, you're becoming demonized, right? You're, 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 you're thinking, your affections are being demonically influenced. You're being satanically attacked. Elsewhere, he says very specifically in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in, in the heavenly realm. When I was in college, my senior year, I, last semester, I lived in a house with two other guys, and one of the guys... Uh, the Mormons were really after him a lot, and they used to come, and he used to hang out, and, and it reached a point where it was kind of a crisis point. This guy was, a, was an evangelical Christian, or thought he was, he professed to be, and, and I thought, man, I got I to gotta do something. So I, 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 being the person I am, I created a file, right? And I did all this research. I'm like, here's Joseph Smith. Here's all the contradictions in the Book of Mormon. Here's all the historical, you know, I had all this, but I found that there was still this sort of haze of confusion that was over our home because it wasn't, I can distinctly remember one night thinking, what is going on here? It's like a cloud because this was not just a rational battle. This was a spiritual battle with spiritual forces. And, and because of that, we need to engage in it differently. We need to engage in prayer. We need to engage with the power of God's Word. Paul also says, don't be naive, don't be naive about the ultimate origin of this deception and the ultimate power behind it. But he says, don't be naive about the human agents used for it, right? Because it's not like people are just out there like literally seeing spirits and following them. These spirits work through human instruments. They work through human agents. And Paul doesn't hold back in his language here, right? There's a, let's be honest, when we're, when we're witnessing to people, say you have some Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, there's a way to engage in them very graciously and kindly. And then there are other times, times of crisis, maybe within the church, where it's important to speak very bluntly and clearly. And Paul, this is before the crash, Paul says, let me say it like it is. These people, he says, verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron, right? Paul says, he says, you know, you, we're, we're and this is very applicable to our day because I think people are attracted. They say, well, what's what spirituality? It's where people are authentic, where they're sincere, where they're humble. That's the test of spirituality. Paul says, no, if you contradict what God has said about himself and his word, 
I'm just going to call it like it is. That makes you a liar, right? That's a liar. You either say what God said, and that's true, or you say something else, and that makes you a liar. He also calls them hypocritical liars. Not completely sure I know what that means, right? I know what hypocritical means. It means you say one thing and do another. But I'm inclined, and and we read later on what they're doing. He focuses in this text on them forbidding people to marry and forbidding certain foods for, for them. They have to abstain from certain foods and forbid people to marry. And I think what Paul is saying here is you think you're making, you claim to be making people holy by holding them back from these appetites. But in actuality, you're filled with lust and greed and anger because man's rules, human rules tacked onto the gospel, do not make a holy people. (laughs) But instead, they have the opposite effect. Human rules tacked onto the Scripture result in a disabandonment of the one who can make us holy. It's, It's a running away from the relationship with the living God who transforms us and makes us into holy people. We can see many examples of us this in the modern world. It's so easy to point fingers, and I hesitate, I hesitate to give an example of it, but I, I'm going to give it just to be very practical, and then I'm going to bring it back to us. But you think about the Roman Catholic Church. They say, well, we're going to have the most holy clergy. We're going to have be so sexually pure that you're, you're not even going to marry, right? But then we look at, at, at what's going on in the news and the hundreds, if not thousands of people and the abuse that's taking place, and we say, human rules. It's not God's rule that a pastor should not marry. Human rules tacked onto the Bible result in, in all kinds of distortion and error and confusion. So at a very practical level for us, we have to ask God, where are we in danger of adding human regulations, human expectations to the, 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 the truth, the, the basic truth that we are sinners who are forgiven by Christ, and then we come and follow Him as His disciples? Where are we adding man-made rules? Not things we find in Scripture, not find we f- things we find in Jesus' teaching, but we, may the Spirit search us and, and show us if and where we're doing those things. So we see, again, in this passage, Paul tells us this is going to happen. False teachers are going to come. People are going to follow them. We live in the latter times. God's clearly told us this. And he says, let me tell you about the true nature of such deceptive teaching. It's demonic. This is a spiritual battle. And these people who are delivering this to you, they're they're responsible for this too. They're liars. They're hypocrites. Their consciences no longer function. Their consciences are like a cauterized wound. It's like a callus that no longer feels. And they're out there telling people, do this, don't do this, do do this. But they have no moral compass themselves. There's no basis for what they're claiming. They're confused and deceived, and they're liars. Finally, Paul tells us in this passage that that we should not be deceived. And and we read this, and it's very easy... (laughs) You know, to read something that from 2,000 years ago and say, well, I'm not going to get taken in by that. You know, don't get married, don't eat these certain foods. That's, that's not my problem. But let's be, let's be honest. We never see deception coming when it comes. It's very subtle. It's, that's why it's called deception, right? It doesn't knock on the door and say, I'm satanic distortion, and I'm here. Would you please accept me, right? It comes as an invitation to greater spirituality. It comes as an invitation to greater holiness, right? Uh, Many times. It's it's confusing and deceptive. And so how, how are we and others 
not to get sucked into such deception. And Paul tells us, gives us some very clear guidelines at the end of this passage, verses 3 through 5. And I want you to note what he does not do. Paul does not come in and say, people tell you not to marry? That's ridiculous. Get married. You know, he doesn't say, people saying don't eat certain foods? Silly. Eat the foods. Notice what he does. He goes to the theological foundation, right? Because behavior and belief are intertwined, right? Doctrine and life are intertwined. And he sort of, he takes the roundup, we might say, of theological correction he sprays it, and it kills it to the root, right? He's, he's not content just to change behavior. He goes to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue is that knowing what God has said and done will protect us from error, right? Knowing what God has said and done in his word will protect us from error. So we have, we have the objective guidance pr- presented three times in this passage, right? And, and uh, a commentary by, by Mounts, highlighted this to me. It's like this tapestry. Paul repeats himself three times with the objective guidance and three times with the subjective guidance. It's like this rope that's woven together. And the objective guidance that he speaks of, knows how he says, uh, certain foods which God created, everything God created, because it's consecrated by the Word of God. And, And it seems quite clear that Paul is alluding here, quoting from the creation account, Genesis 1.31 and many other places in Genesis 1 where God creates, he says, it is good, it is good. Over and over again, God declares his creation is good. And so Paul says, now this behavioral issue has a theological root problem. The root problem is you do not believe what the scripture says, that God created these things and they are good, right? He goes, so how do we protect ourselves from error? We know what God has said and done. We know it through the scripture. Secondly, there's this subjective confirmation, right? And you can see, again, this is woven in verses 3 through 5. He says, uh, how, how, how do we know we should eat this food? And uh, how do we know that we should get married? These things are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Verse 5, because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So he, he says... Can you give thanks for it? Can you give thanks for it? Can you, can you pray to God giving thanks for these things? Now, by itself alone, that's not a sufficient test, right? Some crazy person could be like, yeah, I'm thankful for marijuana. You know, you're like, no, that doesn't make it right, right? But put together with the objective test, what has God said and done in his word? And now we're talking about people who know, who believe, and who know the truth, people who are indwelt by the Spirit, who are walking with God. It says God gives you the ability then in these situations of uncertainty with discernment that he's given you from his word to say, can I thank God for this? Can I partake of this with thanksgiving? Can I thank And And he gives you discernment in those situations. So at a very practical level, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live and believe differently because of this text of Scripture. I think, again, taking it back to the premarital counseling example, the, the, the couple that goes through premarital counseling know to expect there are going to be arguments, know to expect there's going to be difficulties. The Christian who reads carefully this passage knows there's going to come times in the future where I'm going to be deeply grieved and saddened by people that I love leaving the Christian community. Um, even leaders failing me. And though I'm, I, 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 I'm going to grieve deeply about it, 
I know that God told me this was going to happen, and I'm going to be prepared for it. And maybe it means we'll pray differently for people as well, rather than holding on to some kind of, well, he walked the aisle when he was 10 years old, you know, but he's had no evidence of faith for 20 years. Maybe we need to pray for that person's salvation rather than assuming um, that they were indeed a believer since there's no evidence of it now. It also means we're not going to be naive. We're going to be ready for spiritual battle. We're not going to think we can argue someone out of error, but we're going we're to look to God who has spiritual, ultimate, omniscient, omnipotent spiritual forces to defeat the devil. And we're going we're gonna to be armed and ready for battle in these conversations. And we're going we're gonna to be courageous Christian soldiers. And, and thirdly, I think at a very practical level, say, how am I not going to be someone who's confused and deceived? But I want to be someone who's helping people who are in danger of deception rather than someone who's having to be helped. We're going to do that by being people who know the Word of God, right? Who know God's words and know His actions by, by studying the Word, by soaking in it, by, by, being, by being discerning Christians, and, and also uh, by experiencing it, right? By, by being people who can say, I've lived and walked with God, and so I can give thanks for this. I can pray with thanksgiving because, because I have a conscience that's trained by the Spirit of God and not, not one that's just affected by the world. And I think as we do that, these, these potential competitions will fall away, right? And we'll, we'll, we'll be drawn back to the center. We'll be drawn back to the wonderful truth of the gospel that, that we are sinners, and though we do not deserve it, Jesus came and lived a perfect life for us that we could never live. He died a death for us that we deserve to die. We come to him in repentance and faith, and he forgives us. He welcomes us. He, he assures us nothing can ever snatch us out of his hand. And when we do that, all those false religious claims, all those competing interests fall away, and they're exposed for what they are because we're holding on to the glorious truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that will guide us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom in giving us this text that you might instruct us, that you might equip us for spiritual battle. I pray for this lovely church, these people, that you would continue to protect them from error, that they would be discerning Christians who teach and protect other people through their knowledge of your word, through walking with you, being courageous, spiritual soldiers fighting the powers of darkness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.